Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're doing okay. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Roxanne Gay. She has a new essay collection out called Opinions, a decade of arguments, criticism, and minding other people's business. Even if I don't like it, even if I get deep in my feelings, of course you can criticize the work. That's fine. It's there. So it's going to be criticized. That's normal. That's natural. You're going to get critical reviews in publications, you're going to get critical reviews on social media, and some of them are going to be offered in good faith. And some of them are going to be like well thought out and well written. And frankly, some of them are going to make valid points. And then there's the nonsense. All right. That was Roxanne Gay. Her new book is called Opinions, a decade of arguments, criticism, and minding other people's business. It is available now from Harper Books. It published just yesterday, I believe. Opinions is a collection of Roxanne Gay's opinion writing from the past 10 years or so. Essays on culture, politics, feminism, civil rights, and more. These essays were published in a variety of publications, including the New York Times and The Guardian. Opinions is a sharp, incisive, heartfelt, and thought-provoking anthology. My conversation with Roxanne Gay is coming up in just a bit. 
A quick reminder about my weekly newsletter before we get started. You can subscribe over at Substack. The newsletter lives over at Substack now, and it is pretty straightforward. I share the news of the latest episodes of this show. I also share links to things that I have been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me once a week in your inbox, go sign up for my email newsletter at Substack. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get yourself some merchandise, a book club subscription, help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Books, publisher of the novel Penance by Eliza Clark. Penance is a chilling, brilliantly told story of murder among a group of teenage girls. Penance is also the official October pick of the Other People Book Club. That's Penance, the new novel by Eliza Clark, available now from Harper Books. Today's episode is also brought to you by Relegation Books, publisher of Roundabout, the debut novel by Will Mountain Cox. In Roundabout, a group of friends and lovers in Paris weather the polycrisis of contemporary life, exploring cycles of connecting, belonging, departing, and inevitable change. Listeners over in Europe can meet Will Mountain Cox on his upcoming book tour at the new Nordic bookshop, Bachbar, in Paris, at Shakespeare and Sons in Berlin and at Desperate Literature in Madrid. That's Roundabout, the debut novel by Will Mountain Cox, available from Relegation Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Roxane Gay. Her new book is called Opinions, a decade of arguments, criticism, and Minding Other People's Business. It is available now from Harper Books. Roxane Gay's other books include the essay collection Bad Feminist, a New York Times bestseller, the novel An Untamed State, which was a finalist for the Dayton Peace Prize, a memoir called Hunger, which was a New York Times bestseller and received a National Book Critics Circle citation, and then the short story collections, Difficult Women and Aiti. Roxane Gay is a contributing opinion writer to the New York Times and has also written for a wide variety of publications, including Time, McSweeney's, The LA Times, The Nation, Book Forum, and Salon. She is also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel. It's great to have Roxanne Gay back here on the Other People podcast, and I'm excited to share our conversation with all of you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Roxanne Gay, and her new book, One More Time, is called Opinions. Um, my parents are Haitian, and Haitian women are, in general, very formidable. And my mother is no exception to that rule. And growing up, she was always very opinionated, and 
she always stood up for what she believed was right, and she did so unapologetically. And at times it was overwhelming because she was such a presence and still is to this day. And it was, in retrospect, an excellent example of how to stand up for yourself, how to be true to yourself, how to live your values. And it was just such an example. And it really implicitly set the stage for how I would become a writer and the way I would approach writing on the page. So did standing up for yourself and emulating your mother come naturally to you? Like how much of a learning curve was there? Cause I want to say you've written about being shy Mm. and I think that might surprise some people who know you through your writing or know you through like reading you online. But was this something that you had to work towards? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, it's a learning curve I'm still on. It's very hard for me to do. I can do it on the page most of the time. I struggle to do it in my day-to-day life, but you know, it's a learning process. I think that you have to give yourself permission to have opinions and that recognize that you have as much right as anyone else to articulate those opinions. And that's something that I always remind myself of because a lot of times people say, who am I Uh, to share my opinions and to contribute to public discourse? And the question I try to ask myself is why not me? You know, why not? There's no shame in it. People do it all the time. And I try to, offer my opinions and arguments on matters that I feel qualified to speak on. And in doing so, I try to therefore never embarrass myself. <laughs> right. Well, that, that brings up a question, cause I'm kind of one of these people who self-censors, mm-hmm. especially on social media where I'm like, nobody needs my two cents. There's enough opining happening. Like I will reel myself in mm-hmm. and, maybe wisely (laughs) in certain instances, but you do have to make that choice and you do have to approach it in the way that you're describing where you value what you have to say and you have a level of discernment to know when to speak up and maybe when to refrain when you feel like you actually have an opinion that's worth sharing that is born of uh, like a, a a real understanding, a research process, a lived experience? It just depends. You know, I think the older I get, the more I am able to make that discernment, the more I'm able to say, not only do I have an opinion on this, but I feel qualified, or I'm going to do the work in order to feel qualified. And then there are issues that I recognize I have opinions on, perhaps, but that's not my lane. And... I know that there are other people who are far better qualified to speak on them. And it really is important for me to make those distinctions for myself, because when you are a public writer, for lack of a better term, people expect you to weigh in on everything, and they want you to weigh in on everything. And the reality is that I'm not well-versed in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. I, I read the news, and I definitely try to stay abreast of what's happening and all of the complications of 
what Putin is trying to do and what Ukraine is resisting um, and what it really means for the broader world. But that's not my area of expertise. And there are plenty of really excellent experts for whom it is their area of expertise. And so I defer to them and I try to learn from them. I try to learn and read and listen. And I think if more of us would learn to listen sometimes, we would all be the better for it. And I think it would improve the quality of discourse that we have about some of these truly major issues that we grapple with as a society. I'm interested as well to talk with you about your evolution as a writer of opinion. <laughs> it's kind of a chicken or the egg question because mm -hmm. you have a huge online following on social media. And you, I mean, by my standards, you have a, a very big online following. And I, I'm wondering if the advent of your professional life as a writer of opinion f followed that or was useful in growing that following? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did the evolution work? Oh, well, the audience came from the writing. It, it was definitely the writing first. And I never expected to gain a large social media following. I remember many years ago, I was on Twitter and I probably had three or 4,000 followers and I was following Matt Johnson, who is one of my favorite writers. And he had like, I can't remember, maybe 55,000 or 70,000 followers. I just remember thinking, how does a writer of literary fiction amass that kind of a following online? It just seemed unthinkable to me. And I was so impressed and I just thought, wow, like, people must really love what he has to say online for him to have this many followers. And of course he's wonderful on social media. He's pulled back in recent years. Like I think most of us have, but back then he was so funny and so dry and I just loved that. And it wasn't a goal for me. It just was like, wow, that is the standard. And slowly but surely I started to build an online audience of my own and, you know, it happened slowly and it also seemed to happen all at once. In the next day you look and you have like 850,000 followers and it's just like, where did all of you come from? And is my opining on yogurt on Twitter really that interesting? Uh, but, you know, it is there and I don't take it for granted. Are there events like online events or in real, you know, real life events that you can point to that really catalyzed the growth? Not really. I think it really was just something that happened over time. It just happened. And um, the more I wrote, the, and I think the better I wrote, the more people um, decided to follow me. And also I, I could be pretty spicy on Twitter. <laughs> You know, I think on Twitter, when it was actually good, I was able to be like the wittiest, most brave version of myself. And for whatever reason, people found that interesting or engaging or enjoyable. Or, of course, there is always that small segment of people who are hate following me because I suppose they have nothing better to do, which, yikes. But, you know, it just really happened over time. And 
I, I can't point to one specific thing. I think it really was the sum of my writings and, you know, like live tweeting award ceremonies and things like that. And my nemesis chronicles, it was just all of the above. And we still don't know who your nemesis is publicly, correct? Well, I have 10, so no. Oh, no. <laughs> so you've added, you've added nemeses. I mean, it's a list. Um, <laughs> and I nurture that list very well. I love her. <laughs> I have a fantasy that one day you're going to confide in me and tell me who your nemeses are. I mean, I'll I tell know. you a couple one day. Yeah, absolutely. We can have okay. some wine and I will give you the good news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... In revisiting, like putting this collection together, one of the things that I projected onto it, thinking about my own relationship with my own opinions, has to do with this notion of disagreeing with myself. Mm -hmm. I think on the big stuff, I'm pretty consistent. Though I will often be like, ah, there's more nuance here. I missed it the first time around. Occasionally, I'll just be like, wow, that's a terrible take. You know, like, I, I disagree with myself. I am wondering if, in putting this collection together, you ever found any of your own opinions to be cringeworthy or if you ever disagreed with yourself. I sure didn't. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I, I certainly look as I was assembling the collection, I found like ticks of mine, like things that I do over and over again. And so I had a lot of craft critique for myself, like, girl, we're doing this again? Again? Come on. But in terms of my opinions, they haven't really shifted. But that's not as radical as it might seem, because, you know, a lot of what I'm arguing is that the police shouldn't murder black people. <laughs> like, there's nowhere for that opinion to go in terms of changing, at least for me, as a black person and someone who is... Um, vigorously opposed to the death penalty and extrajudicial murder. So, you know, like, there's nowhere for that opinion to go. Do my opinions evolve and mature and deepen? I would like to think so, yes. And so when I look at some of my earlier work from maybe 2013, 2014, I'm not ashamed of it, and I wouldn't disavow it, but I would like to believe that I'm a more elegant thinker now than I was then. And in terms of how this collection is structured and sequenced you know you spoke earlier about having a lane and like kind of knowing what your lane is mm. ukraine being for example not your lane <laughs> but uh police violence and brutality against black people is your lane that is something you feel that well, you're compelled to, to opine about correct no that's a good question it's not that that's my lane it's that there are also things that happen that i find to be so unacceptable and so intolerable that i am compelled to write about them i would like to believe that's nobody's lane and we shouldn't have to write about it because these things shouldn't be happening it's just when these news stories started coming up and with such alarming frequency i just kept thinking how could i not say something how could any of us remain silent in the face of this? And so in addition to feeling like I might have a lane, I also feel like there are things that are so grotesque that we should all be saying something. I would like to believe, in fact, I would say it's everyone's lane when it comes to that kind of racism and obsessions with guns and obsession with control and, and really white male fear. So for people listening, the collection is grouped into sections. You have 
uh, a section called identity slash politics, a section called the matter of black lives, which I think we were just speaking to, uh, a section called civic responsibilities, a section called for the culture, a section called man problems, which I guess we were also just speaking to, <laughs> uh, a section called minding other folks business and a section called solicited advice. So I'm wondering about the process of landing on that. I guess it was kind of self-evident, but you do have to go through all of this material and find a way to sequence it and put it together in a way that is digestible for readers. Was that a big challenge? It was in that a lot of the essays could fit in multiple categories. And so the organization is is kind of loose, but I did want to group the essays instead of just doing chronological without some sort of categorization. And within each category, for the most part, the essays are actually chronological. So you can see an arc, you can see how things change or unfortunately how things don't change. That I could write about police brutality in 2014 and also still write about it in 2019 and 2023. So there was a lot of thinking behind it, but I also recognize that some of the pieces fit in multiple categories. And in those instances, I just kind of went with what felt most organic. And in terms of your like mental and emotional process when it comes to deciding to write a work of opinion... I know that some of this is born of assignment where, you know, somebody reaches out to you and hires you to write a piece. At least that was the the case. I don't know if that's still the case, but it it has been the case for you. But can you just talk a little bit about how you know, like how, when you feel yourself engaged by something in the culture, in the news, and you feel yourself starting to form an opinion and feeling that desire to write about it. Can you just talk a little bit about how it works for you? Yes, I I do write on assignment sometimes, but oftentimes I start writing something and I reach out to my editor at the Times. Right now her name is Vanessa Mobley and she's amazing. And I run a one or two sentence idea by her and most of the time she's like, yes, I would love to read that. And I go from there. You know, it just, something happens and I you know, I start having thoughts about it. And I find that while I'm going about my day or doing something else, I'm preoccupied and I'm starting to pull pieces together of what I might want to say if I were to say something. And if I can't sort of get rid of that thinking, if it lingers, I recognize that, oh, okay, I probably have more to say here let me get into it. And so then I will do some research, generally do some reading around it. What are other people saying about this topic? Uh, What do I need to read to be better informed? I have a research assistant now, which is great. So I can oftentimes say, hey, can you go and like, I'm working on a piece right now about a TV show called um, Naked Dating dating and naked or something like that. And it's really hilarious. (laughs) And I first saw it when I was in London on book tour about four or five months ago. And my wife and I were watching TV and all of a sudden schlong. And we were like, what is this? It was the actual full frontal. uh, Yeah. On broadcast television. 
it was wild. And because, you know, both of us are from the United States, where you would never see that on network television, you know, it was intriguing and also like, mm. but the show is actually kind of funny and interesting. And so I started thinking about that show and why it's so interesting. And, you know, is it really that radical to see naked people? No, it isn't actually. And the show is not grounded in like shaming or anything like that. It's really about, does this person appeal to you? And would you want to date them now that you see them without clothing? And, you know, it's just a dating show. And yet there's this twist. So I'm just interested in that. So I started to read about the history of nudity on television and cultural attitudes towards nudity, both here and abroad. And so right now I'm just reading and percolating and, you know, this one has a quick turnaround. So I'm going to work on it over the weekend and hopefully file like by Wednesday of next week um, because it's a short piece. And so it's not like it's going to require months and months of research, but I still want to know like the background and like, how did we get to this place where a show like this could air? And so that can be the genesis of an essay. And that's for the New York Times or... Uh, no, that, this one is actually for The Guardian. I'm working on a couple of pieces for The Times. I'm working on um, an essay about billionaires and why we have a cultural obsession with them because it's really weird. So many people like will defend a billionaire with their last breath, even though that person will never, ever meet them and never, ever help them and is, in fact, actively harming them by not paying their fair share of taxes. So what is it? Why do we treat them with authority? Why does Elon Musk get to consult with uh, military leaders? Why does he get to dictate the terms of war? And why do we look to Bill Gates for thoughts on vaccines? You know, why do we imbue these men, mostly, with unearned authority? It's just why. What is going on there? And so I'm just thinking that through. And then I'm also working on a piece about um, the trope of small towns in country music and how most of the people who valorize small towns have never lived in one. And really small town is a placeholder for whiteness. And it overlooks the reality that there are all kinds of people who live in small towns across the racial ethnic spectrum and other, of course, demographics. And so, you know, like really what, when people are saying small town, they're saying white small town, a place where we don't have to confront difference and where we can sort of coddle ourselves with a white fantasy of peace and prosperity. So, you know, again, it's just ideas that come into my head and germinate and I've been pretty blocked lately. So, you know, these things are all very short, but (laughs) I've been working on them for a minute. And, you know, as new things happen, I tend to have an idea. Like, I went to a Beyonce concert recently. I fucking loved it. It was amazing. And so I think I want to write a little essay about, like, this moment of collectivity. There's this thing that she does during the concert, the Renaissance tour, where she sings um, from the song Energy, and she's like, everybody on mute. And in the song, the next lyric comes immediately, but in concert, she stops and waits for the audience to go completely silent and some cities do better than others. And then when the silence is over, 
everyone starts jumping up and down, screaming the lyrics of the song that come next. And it was so, you know, exhilarating to be part of that and to be jumping up and down with my friends, like singing our heads off. And like everyone was doing it, like 70,000 people in SoFi Stadium were doing this. And I just thought like, you know, for all of the things that we worry about as people, and all of our concerns for humanity, there are things that unite us. And the other time I experienced that was at the Super Bowl, the year that Dr. Dre, who's a problem, and all of the 90s rappers came together and did an amazing show. And again, that was probably 80,000, 90,000 people in SoFi Stadium, because the whole stadium was open for that. And jumping up and down and like rapping these songs from my teenage years and like it was the great unifier. There were like, you know, clear good old boys from Kentucky and people from Los Angeles and people from Minnesota and everywhere. And to just like have these moments, you know, it makes you wonder like, why can't we take this from like this glorious musical moment and apply it to the rest of our lives? You know, what is it that dissipates when the music stops? And so, you know, I've been percolating on that. And that's just how essays happen for me most of the time um, when, I, when I'm when i self-generating. Something happens or I experience something and then I wonder, what are the broader cultural connections here? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, and I got to believe that having the platform that you have now, both on social and especially the New York Times, unless I'm misconceiving it, it that's a that's a big that that's a game changer. When you start to publish your opinions in the New York Times opinion section, the response is significantly higher than it is elsewhere, correct? Oh yeah, I mean there's nothing like it. You think you like know what a big readership is until you go over to the Times. I, I didn't frankly understand. I, at all. I had no idea. And now I do. And it's overwhelming. And I, again, it's, it, that's something I don't take for granted. I wish that my creativity was where I where it should be at like 100%. So I could write, I mean, I'm supposed to write for them once a month. And I haven't been simply because I've just been so creatively blocked. But it, it's an incredible platform and it's an, a deeply flawed platform but frankly they all are and it's important to recognize that it's just to be able to be someone like me writing in such a visible way 
it's not ever something I imagined for myself. And it's a little unreal to this day. You have to be invited to become an opinion writer by the New York Times or you didn't apply for that job, no, right? No, no. Um, in general, you have to be invited, but you can also like write an opinion essay and submit it. There are all kinds of ways to to write for the Times, but most of the time you are solicited or you're an expert on something and an editor will reach out and say, hey, do you have some thoughts on this? Would you write an opinion essay for us? And if they like your work, they'll invite you on as a regular contributor, but it's not salaried by any stretch of the imagination. It's not like an opinion columnist. They call them they call them guest essays now for some reason. And but I think the title is contributing opinion writer, which means you, you contribute on a regular basis. And there's a stable, I think, of probably maybe 30 people who contribute about once a month. And then there are the however many full time columnists. Okay. And you've mentioned a couple times now that you have been struggling with creative block. Mm. That comes as a surprise to me because I conceive of you as being somebody who is so prolific and productive and you're working in all these different areas. Do you have a, an understanding of why the block is there? Or I guess if you did, maybe it wouldn't be there. No, I don't. I wish I did. It's really a lot. Well, no, that's not true. I think it's in part a lot of pressure. The more visibility you have, the more that people are going to criticize you. And that's okay. I can tolerate criticism and it goes with the job. And frankly, criticism is healthy. But then there's this level beyond criticism that's unrealistic, that's generally tendered in profoundly bad faith, where people are attacking you as a person. They're attacking your marriage. They're attacking, which I find unconscionable, like, wow, really? And then, you know, they attack your looks. They attack your race or ethnicity, your body size. And it's just so unpleasant that that's the price of doing your job. That the, that's the price of having an opinion. And it just, it doesn't feel worth it anymore. It just, it's like, wow. It, and it's not looking for a perfect world or, you know, expecting everyone to love everything. But you know what? I do expect to not get death threats. I do. I do expect to not have to deal with anti-Semitism. I do expect to not have to deal with racism and like truly egregious levels of racism and homophobia and fat phobia. It's just like, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. And, and that makes me sad because I love writing. I love what I do, but the trolling and the harassment has gotten to a level that I find just not tolerable. So it makes it hard to write because I get in my head and I think, okay, what are they going to say about this? What are they going to attack me for with this? Instead of actually engaging with what I wrote, like critique the writing, sure. Like, let's talk about it. What is flawed here? What could use more rigor? But that's not what happens, ever. And so I think it has blocked me up pretty good. <laughs> and that most of, most of that sort of toxic feedback comes via social? Social media, email, I also get, because I teach at a state university and have for most of my career, I get letters at work because your information is public record, um, your your professional information. And so I get these fucking, anytime I get like a thick envelope, it's like, oh, 
this again. And, you know, you open it and there's some crazy racist ranting about Hitler and um, these sort of Illuminati conspiracies and guns. And like, it's just such a wild range of insanity. And, you know, it's just very annoying. It's more than annoying at times. Sometimes it's just hurtful. Sometimes it's exhausting. Uh, sometimes it's disgusting. So, you know, it just comes and it comes and it comes and, and the real haters are relentless. They just never let up. And so I block, of course, I block liberally. And I, you know, like people are always like, this is what's going to get me off of Twitter. But the thing that will get me off Twitter is if Elon actually goes through with removing the block. I'm simply not going to do that. And I don't know that many people will. Um, I, 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 I want to say I read wonderful. somewhere. I, I want to say I read somewhere that it's actually not permissible to have an app without like a social app without a block function to get your app in the app store that oh, good. I could be wrong, but hopefully that's the case. Yes. Even though I think he's trying to destroy the platform. So I don't know that that would really be a deterrent for him, but we'll see. We will see. Okay. So sort of a sidebar, but you, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on why, what would be his motive for wanting to destroy the platform to, to harm public discourse, the ability for people to form online community? No, you know, I, I don't think it's that deep. I don't think that he's that precise of a thinker. I'm sorry, but I don't, I think that he is not receiving the adoration that he wants on Twitter. And he resents it. And so if you won't love me the way I want, in the numbers I want, well then, I'm going to destroy your toy. And I also think, again, like billionaires tend to imbue themselves with a sense of authority. I think he thinks he knows better. <laughs> and, you know, he keeps saying, like, for each idea, he's like, it's great, and then it's absolutely terrible. And he's undeterred. It, it's just, like, failure does not move him in any way. He does not even... Uh, he does not even perceive failure or he is able to take failure and lie to himself. And so I honestly don't know what he's doing, but I don't think it's anywhere near as sophisticated as people are saying, like that he wants to destroy free speech or, or discourse. Like it's not on that level. It's all about vanity. It's all about vanity. And, you know, he wanted people to love him and he thought that by buying Twitter, which he did on an impulse, that he would start to receive all of the adoration that he wants. I think he wants to be seen in the many, the way that some of these other tech bros are seen. And frankly, they're not that loved, but they are more like than he is. And he, I think he just craves that without realizing that like, sir, you can't buy friends. You really can't. You can buy fake friends. You can buy yes men and yes women, but you cannot buy respect. You just can't. And people will tolerate you. And I think he knows that he's just tolerated. And I think he hates it. So for people listening, uh, to go back like one step to when we were, you were talking about the toxic feedback and the creative block, mm -hmm. there might be people listening who are thinking to themselves, like, Roxanne, why don't you just not read this stuff? Like, why don't you just throw those envelopes away? Why don't you just not read the comments on Twitter? Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to, I mean, it's easier said than done, right? Well, yeah, that's easier said than done. I, I definitely have pulled back and there are lots of things that I just choose not to read online. But 
you can't get away from it when they send it to your inbox. Like, because oftentimes it comes in such an innocuous way or with a misleading headline, a a title for the email that you don't know what it is that you're reading until you like start reading it. And oftentimes it's so surprising the way that this thing comes in where you're like, wait a minute. Oh my God. Like what is wrong with people? It's just really terrible. And then other times like, Roxanne is an ugly nig- N-word. Total true subject of an email. This one guy, his name is, um, I'm not going to say his name because he's nuts and he's gone quiet for a while and I appreciate it. But this man has sent me about 200 emails over the past two years. And a lot of it is Nazi propaganda. He calls me an ape. He calls me a munch and dyke. Like, and this is in my inbox. And so I can delete the emails or I save them for the FBI. But... I can't like not see it unless I just don't look in my inbox, which is potentially a solution at some point, but it just doesn't feel realistic. And then like, why do I have to rearrange my life so drastically to avoid other people's uh, hatred? I just, you know, I just don't know that I, it's fair. Of course we don't live in a fair world and I'm not expecting fairness per se, but sometimes it just comes in in really innocuous ways. And like the email starts out normal. I remember one time someone sent me an email and it said, like it started out with uh, a friendly email subject and the email started out with, you know, my friends and I are reading your book and we think about it a lot in your work. And then the next line was, how do you wipe your own ass? How do you go to the bathroom? Are you just walking around covered in shit? And I was just like, I was so like, what? Because you're reading this email and you think it's normal. And then you get to this like, just viciously weird, cruel thing. And it's like, oh, okay. And like, I suppose if I was a more evolved person with a thicker skin, I would just be like, ha ha ha. And in general, I, after a minute, I can like walk it off. But in that first moment where you realize that someone has taken time out of their day to say something grotesque and mean, and just like weird, it's upsetting. It is. And it just makes the job feel like, is it really worth it? I don't know that it is. Yeah, that's rough. Have you uh, commiserated with other opinion writers and talked to them about whether or not they're dealing with this stuff as well and how they cope with it? I have. You know, the the people that I commiserate the most with are, of course, other black women, because not every opinion writer deals with this. I do think every opinion writer gets feedback. Every opinion writer gets weird, sometimes disturbing things. But the more marginalized you are, the more amplified and the more intense the kinds of feedback that you get. And it can be useful to commiserate and, uh, you know, like, to hear what some other people are dealing with. And and like, there are people who are dealing with way worse, which is like, wow, wow. Like there's a lower depth than this. And there is, there absolutely is like young, attractive, like conventionally attractive feminists, the things that they deal with in terms of like rape threats and men sending them dick pics. And which, and and like when you take these things in isolation, it's like, okay, but like, the sum of it, it's just like there are some truly fucked up people out there who are 
I don't know, sad, lonely, desperate, cruel. Ment- mentally ill. Me- like partly, but I know plenty of mentally ill people and they don't sit around sending harassing emails to people and stalking right. them and things like that. But there is, I think with some of this, yes, absolutely a component of mental illness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that in the abstract, most people, if they stopped and thought about it, would expect as part of the trade-off that you make when you start, for example, writing opinion pieces for the New York Times, especially those that deal with charged issues politically, racially, and otherwise. But there is a big difference between the abstract understanding of what toxic feedback might entail and then the actual lived experience of it, particularly when you are a person writing from a marginalized community, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is uh, the volume of it and the intensity of it. That's a lot to process. It is. It is. And I try to have the necessary perspective. I talk about it in therapy quite a lot. I recognize that you know, you are going to get pushback, but I also try not to diminish how horrible it is because so many people want you to diminish it so that they don't have to feel uncomfortable. And so I work really hard to just admit, you know what, it's exactly as bad as I think it is. Is it the end of the world? Am I, no. Am I still very lucky? Yes. So, yeah. What did May I ask what your therapist advises? <laughs> like people people listening who might deal with like maybe lesser degrees of this and trying to kind of be creative despite toxic feedback. Like what is the answer? You know, my therapist doesn't have like a lot of answers. Really what she does is listen and affirm. And sometimes you just need that from like one person. But she also helps me to develop coping mechanisms to recognize that more often than not, these things are not about me. They're about the people that are saying them. And that's really helpful. That's a really helpful frame to allow me to just put it in its proper context and not let it get to me and recognize that like, maybe this person is just profoundly lonely and feeling impotent in some way in their life. And this is the way that they deal with it. Um, Because I'm the most available target. And sometimes that works. And then other times it's just, she's like, I, I actually, my therapist, my first, my, my, my sort of real, not real therapist, but I had a therapist for a few years who I love and she died. And before she died, she had cancer. And so she was like, I'm going to have you work with my best friend while I'm doing my treatment. And then I'll be back. And I was like, yay, because I can't wait to work with her again because she was so great. And so it took a minute for me to work, not work with, but to get used to this new therapist. And it was challenging. But now I think we have found a groove. And, you know, sometimes she'll just be like, fuck that guy. And I'm like, really? You can say that? And I like, I actually like it. I like that she is a bit of a brawler and is unafraid to say things like fuck that guy it's very pleasant to me well i think it's merited in some cases it is you know, it really some, is sometimes it's the only proper response when yeah. somebody's coming at you with just insanity and, and cruelty and on a related note i want to talk with you about the ways in which readers process opinion in the digital age 
because so much of the response to your work that happens in this vein in particular, the angry responses, the cruel responses, the hateful responses, they are often delivered by readers who didn't even read the piece. Mm-hmm. And this is more common than I think people either realize or want to admit. In the digital age, it seems like we are often responding to headlines. Mm-hmm. And I will cop to, I will cop to, just so I don't sound too holier than thou here, like being a person who in the course of my day will be scrolling through my timeline on Twitter and will read a headline that jibes with something that, that I feel politically or personally or otherwise. And I will like favorite or even retweet a tweet like that. And then I'll catch myself and be like, wait, I didn't even read what the person mm-hmm. wrote. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of us have that experience, but to send somebody like hate mail, having not even really read their piece is next level. You know, and, it really is next level. It's like, whatever you think this says about me, let's consider what the fuck it says about you. <laughs> that you are willing to go on like a headline and vibes. Okay, <laughs> sure. And you know, the, like you said, we've all retweeted something without reading it. And it's so much so that Twitter then developed this little thing that they put in saying, you haven't clicked on the link yet. Are you sure you want to say this without reading it? <laughs> Which, like, man, human nature is such a mess. And so I, I always, tr- I do try to read everything. But sometimes you're just like, you know what, this headline is enough. I have the gist. And I am upset now. <laughs> and so um, when you are on the other end of it, where someone is responding to a headline that you didn't even write and just getting all in your face and it's crystal clear that they have not read what you wrote. It's frustrating as hell. It's just like, wow. Okay, great. Thanks, Bob. And you, <laughs> you bring up a good point that in uh, journalism, the headlines are not usually written by the writer of the piece. The mm-hmm. headlines are written by the editors. Correct? Correct. I mean, we never write the headlines. Now, I often get asked, which of these three headlines do you like best? But even when you pick one and they go with it, sometimes they end up changing it. The headline will change after it goes on and like it doesn't get enough attention. Then like they do tests and all kinds of things like in some secret department and then they'll change the headline. And so you don't even know that the headline is going to stay the same. And sometimes there's an online headline and a print headline. So there's a lot going on that we really don't have anything to do with as writers. And it can be a little frustrating because sometimes I feel like the headline misrepresents what was actually written. But I've been very lucky in that I think I've only really objected to a headline a couple times and I've said something and it has, and my editors have worked with me to find a headline that satisfies the, you know, the data people and also that I feel is more organic for the piece in question. And you say the data people, so these headlines are written to like please the algorithm or whatever. Yeah, or to I think a lot hit. of the headlining is about audience acquisition and also making sure that you get people to stay engaged with the writing and you know read it, and not only read it, but read it to the end. And a good headline does a lot of work 
to that end. So yeah, it's kind of an art to write is. a good headline. It is. It, it really is. It's an art. It's a skill. And I think more people should probably appreciate it. So in, I know the answer to this question because you write about it in the collection, but it's a natural question to ask in light of what we have been talking about. And it has to do with this notion of the ideal discursive environment. We've been talking about the ways in which the discursive environment online and elsewhere can be super toxic and hateful and cruel. But you've also said in this conversation that criticism is fine and fair game. As somebody puts their opinion up on the New York Times, they have to be expecting and tolerant of dissenting opinions. I mean, that's that's part of the game, right? Yes. That's healthy. 100%. And so are there, I, like, it's almost like the genie is out of the bottle when I try to think about this. Like, I, I know that social media could be better regulated in a way that does not diminish, well, I don't know. It gets very, it gets complicated around the freedom of speech issue and the First Amendment and you, one of the things, one of the refrains, you mentioned ticks earlier that you noticed in your work. I don't know if this would qualify because I think it's something that bears repeating, but it has to do with this idea of being free to speak, but not being free of the consequences of that speech. Mm-hmm. That is a recurring theme in this collection, especially in certain sections. So it just becomes a difficult issue to parse. How do we create a healthier and more productive discursive environment without infringing upon people's right to speak. Like, where do we draw the line? I can think of some, <laughs> maybe you can too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, even if I don't like it, even if I get deep in my feelings, crit- you, you, of course you can criticize the work. That's fine. It's there. So it's going to be criticized. That's normal. That's natural. You're going to get critical reviews in publications, you're going to get critical reviews on social media. And some of them are going to be offered in good faith. And some of them are going to be like, well thought out and well written. And frankly, some of them are going to make valid points. And then there's the nonsense. And it's not offered in good faith. It's not thoughtful. It's not well written. That's also fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, do it. Have at it. Have a blast. What's not okay is when people attack you as a person, when they resort to insults, and when they just get cruel. And guess what? We can't do anything about that either. But I do wish, I do wish that we could have discourse without resorting to name calling and bullshit. But I guess, I guess that's a fantasy. I mean, I don't see, I mean, I think of Twitter, for example, I don't, I don't see how you stop people from being awful on that platform. You just don't. And I think that most of us accept that and recognize that. I know I do. Most people do, but we can still also want something better and articulate what that better might look like. It doesn't mean it's going to change anything, but man, let's at least give ourselves something to work toward. So when it comes to like fair game criticism, criticism that is on the level, it might be pointed, it might be difficult for the person on the receiving end to hear or to read. 
this is something that any writer who publishes deals with on some level. Somebody who has as big of a platform as you do and who has sold as many books as you have is going to probably get more of it, right? Mm -hmm. It comes with the territory of being the higher your profile, the more slings and arrows there are going to be. Also, the more flowers thrown. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag. Absolutely. But there are times in this collection and throughout your career when you have been the critic. Mm -hmm. There are pieces in this collection where you are writing pointed criticism of, for example, another author. And there has to be a willingness in somebody who is presenting themselves as an opinion writer to go there. You do, if you're going to have opinions about, say, a piece of art, you kind of can't pull punches. No, you can't. Obviously, you don't say anything outright cruel, as we've been discussing. But if you don't, you know, if you find that a piece of art isn't working for you and you're charged with writing an opinion about it, you have to be willing to go there. Mm -hmm. And you are. Mm -hmm. A question that I have for you is do you ever get worried about the social fallout because the book world is pretty insular mm -hmm. and you're a pretty public writer and you're attending lots of like writers conferences and events and things like that and book festivals mm -hmm. do you ever think to yourself like oh shit i hope i don't run into so-and-so <laughs> because no, I, I wrote something I don't. you don't worry about it i don't like first of all the only person i've really ever panned was <laughs> earned it the book is terrible and that's joyce carol Oates. and she has been very vocal about how much she hates the review and she blocked me on Twitter. So it's okay. Like, all right. And the thing is she can take it. Would I do that to a debut writer? No. Would I write a critical review of a, de a debut writer? Yes. But I would be um, more diplomatic, but I I'm still very proud of the review I did of Joyce Carol Oates is a sacrifice. I also reviewed um, one of, I can't remember the title, but Jody P. Colt's book, which is also tackling some of the same issues of a white woman writing black characters uh, and not necessarily succeeding. But with, with Jody P. Colt, it wasn't offensive. And you could tell that she really tried. She really did research. She really put in the work. There were no bad intentions there. And so when someone puts in the work and gets it wrong, that's okay. We Most of us put in the work and get something wrong. And so that's really how I approached that review. Like, here's some things that work well. And I actually really like Jodi Peoples' work. I find it to be very readable and very, she's a, just an ex excellent storyteller in terms of plot. It's, she's just great at it. And I think that's okay to acknowledge in a review. Like, this person is an amazing storyteller. These things didn't quite work. And uh, she and I have had online conversations since the review came out and I stand by what I wrote. And I also acknowledged, you know, how I got there and why. And I, I tried to be as generous as possible. And I also, I think I said at the end of the review, I hope that she tries this again because I think she'll have learned some valuable lessons, not from my review, of course, but from the process of writing that book. And so I think that a lot of times, I mean, and we see people talk about this in the book community quite a lot, that our critical discourse culture is is in crisis because people seem to love everything. And I, I agree that it's a problem. I do. Uh, I think that there are plenty of mediocre books out in the world, and maybe we should talk about that sometimes. It's okay. And like, I hate that people are afraid to write critical reviews. 
because they worry that it will ruin their reputation or that they'll be blackballed. I mean, that I think that's sad that that's what it's come to. And I don't know that they're wrong. You know, I wish I could say, oh, that would never happen. But I don't know that that would never happen. I think that um, people, writers are kind of a sensitive lot and they take reviews pretty intensely. And I think it is a detriment to us all when we can't have opinions and because that's all they are. It's just opinions. Does it mean that person's right? No, it does not. Could they be right? Maybe, but it doesn't mean that they absolutely are. It's an opinion. And I try to like, I review books on Goodreads, but I don't review it for the writer. I review it for myself and for other readers. And I wish writers would read fewer, like, like, informal reviews because it's not for you you already wrote the book you don't need any feedback reviews are for readers and i think if more writers remembered that we'd all be better off yeah i mean i think sometimes about the reading that i do for this show and i have the impulse sometimes to want to do like my favorite reads of the year just the books that spoke to me the most directly Mm -hmm. whatever mood i happen to be in that week but I don't do it because I'm terrified of hurting people's feelings by not mentioning them in the list. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, I do. Maybe that's cowardly, but I just know that that would be part of the fallout. And I'm like, ugh, it's not even worth it to me. Yeah. But yet I want to celebrate certain books. I'm like, these are terrific. I really loved them. I yet. do that every year. I do. I write up my favorite books of the year. I actually do an annual post of everything I read and I share my true opinions on it for the most part. And I love it. And if people feel some kind of way about it, okay. But reading is a personal experience. This is what I enjoyed. It's not about you. And that so many people take it so... I mean, how can you not take it personally when you put yourself onto the page? But at the same time, like, why do you care about my Goodreads review? I reviewed a book like a year and a half ago. A book that I gave three stars to. Not because I didn't like it, but because I don't like nonfiction. It was hard nonfiction. I had to read it for something. The book is fine. I had really 99% positive things to say about it. And then I was like, this is not the genre for me. And the writer recently sent me like a 500 word email asking me to reconsider my thoughts. And I was like, did you read what I actually wrote? Because I said that you did everything pretty well. I don't like nonfiction. That's not what I love to read. I primarily read fiction. I primarily write nonfiction because that's the way the cookie has crumbled. And, you know, it was just so frustrating that he thought that, like, we had some kind of beef when I was very complimentary. And I also sort of identified who the ideal readers for this book would be. Not me. Just not me. It's not something I enjoy. And, I, you know, a three out of five is not so bad. You know, cry to me when you get a one out of five, which I <laughs> which I get on my books all the time. So, and it hurts. Yes, but I actually don't read Goodreads at all. I, um, I read Goodreads once when I think An Untamed State came out. And I was so excited. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to see what people are going to say. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then I closed that door and I never went back. And that's the only time in my life that I have ever been disciplined is that I don't read my own Goodreads reviews. When I finish a book, I go on Goodreads and I review it and I give myself five stars. (laughs) And that's it. That's what I do. And then I never look at the reviews because 
there's a lot going on up there at Goodreads. And also it's not my business. It's not. And I, I respect that people are going to write what they want to write. And I respect that it's none of my business. And I've also already finished the book. So I can't go back and change it. Well, another thing that this collection functions as, or it functioned this way for me, is as a historical document. Mm-hmm. It really is kind of a tour of the past decade, uh, politically, culturally, and there's something harrowing about it. Like reading these opinions pieces that you are writing, for example, during the course of the 2016 election season, you can kind of feel this gathering sense of foreboding, Mm -hmm. (laughs) reading the pieces that took place after election day. Mm where you're kind of coming clean and self-evaluating in terms of your own level of political engagement mm-hmm. and how you felt a sense of like personal responsibility in the way that a lot of us did, you know, after it was kind of like a post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are other pieces, you know, marking significant cultural moments involving police violence against black men, black women, Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, and in those pieces in particular, you can feel a gathering sense of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. You often express a sense of, exa- it's exhaustion mm-hmm. of having to repeat yourself. Like I'm here again, I'm talking about this again, and yet you are compelled by the gravity of the circumstances. And that was some of the most emotionally powerful reading in this collection for me. Mm-hmm is in that repetition. Mm -hmm. Did you recognize that as you were putting this together? I did. I did. And that was one of the things I was most worried about. And then I recognized it's repetitive because it's repeating because these things continue to happen. And so, yes, on the one hand, it feels like a writerly quirk, but on the other hand, the reason it's repetitive is because I continue to have to write about these things. And I have this tendency, and it's a rhetorical strategy, it's not accidental, where I'll sort of like do this matter of accumulation, like listing like all of the terrible things that are happening around a certain topic. And you do that to remind people of context and also to show like just how grave a problem it is that we're talking about, that all of these things are working in concert to create the world that we're living in. But when you read it in essay after essay, it's a little funny. I, I had to give a, a, like a giggle at myself, like, girl, perhaps we should try a new strategy for the next piece. <laughs> and so I'm working on some new strategies now. I'm like, we're not going to go back to that old chestnut. It has served us well, but it is time to move on. So I saw things like that, and it was humbling. I mean, it's really humbling to put together a body of work and see what you do well and what you need improvement on. And... I hope that readers will engage with the work in whatever way they feel necessary. I hope they, you know, if they want to critique it, you know, please feel free. I I recognize the flaws myself. And I, I also recognize what I think is working well. And I do think that this book works as kind of like a historical document, a time capsule, like look at what we were dealing with during this decade. Uh, which is not certainly the worst decade on record by any stretch of the imagination, but it was pretty rough. And we saw the Trump administration, we saw insurrection, we saw a pandemic, 
you know, that this was a lot. And I think a lot of us look to opinion writing in times like these to help parse like all of these complexities and to help wrap our minds around the magnitude of some of these cultural traumas that we are contending with. So, you know, it's interesting to look at the book as a whole now. So I want to end on a bit of a lighter note. Mm -hmm. And this book does have its moments of lightness. Yes. You know, for sure. There's, there are film reviews and cultural critiques around entertainment and there are celebrity profile pieces and celebrity <laughs> interviews yeah. in this collection with uh, people like Madonna, mm -hmm. Janelle Monet, mm -hmm. Nicki Minaj, mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Paulson. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be a little bit unnerving, especially like in the early going, like you're doing your first big celebrity profile. I can imagine myself getting psyched out, oh, yeah. having, to, having to go to Madonna's house. I think I might have even talked with you about this in our last conversation, but... <laughs> Can you talk about the learning curve on that front? Learning about like how to write a celebrity profile, like what what goes into it? A lot, you know, and the thing is, I it's only now that I feel like I could write a really good celebrity profile. There's nothing wrong with the ones I've written in the past, but I think now I could really do it well. And I hope that I'll get the chance to do it again because it's not my favorite genre of writing at all. I don't have the killer instinct in me to like, ask the hard-hitting question like why did you adopt children from a black country <laughs> you know because partly i feel like that's none of my business and people want to know or people are curious about these things but is it our business i don't think it is and it makes me uncomfortable so that is really challenging but you know you have to do a lot of research and with these with celebrities, so many of them have been asked the same questions over and over and over again. And as someone who's interviewed a lot, I am often asked the same questions over and over. Like, what is a feminist? Oh, I'm not answering. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm patting myself on the back that I did not ask that question. Yeah. Right oh, now, yeah, no, you're my favorite interviewer. Just no one comes close. <laughs> like, it's Mr. California for me. Um, <laughs> you always read the book, which is such a low bar, and yet very few people can clear it. So <laughs> I love doing anything you do. Like, this was like an immediate yes. But, you know, it's hard to then come up with questions that are original. And the reality is you have to accept that maybe you won't, but perhaps the answers to your questions will help you come up with a, an interesting question that they haven't been asked. And there's always a moment, I think, in a really good interview where they say, oh, I've never been asked that before. I love that moment. And I'm always trying to get to that moment to hear something original. My wife, uh, who has her own podcast called Design Matters, does this impeccably well. If you listen to her podcast, there's always a moment where someone will say that and or they'll say, how did you find that out? Because she's one of the most rigorous researchers I've ever met, and she does it all herself. It's remarkable. And so I try to just do as much research as I can. If they are a movie star, I try to read their work. I mean, I try to watch their films and interviews with them. If they're a writer, I try to read and etc. engage with whatever it is that they do. And then I just ask myself, what, what about this person intrigues me? And for Madonna, you know, like, wow, you've been in the game forever. And you have managed to evolve and adapt. And, you know, people like to make jokes about her now. But I'm like, look at her at her age, looking like that, and still doing what she wants. She's not, um, 
you know, like realizing, oh, I'm in my 60s. I should probably tone it down. She's like, no, I'm in my 60s. I'm going to live it up. And yes, she's doing things that people want to judge, like perhaps some plastic surgery. But why is she doing that? She's doing that because of cultural pressures for women to look young. And so, like, I'll also look at things like that. And I think those are interesting things to bring into a profile. So it's not my favorite genre because I don't like the uncomfortable questions part, but or the nosy questions part. But I do enjoy the research and looking for something interesting that hasn't already been said about a person or that hasn't already been written about a person. Well, and what about the moment when you're in the room with a celebrity, especially somebody who is like as front loaded with so much cultural cachet as Madonna and who for people of our generation has occupied like center stage in pop culture Mm -hmm. for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're, you know, suddenly she walks into the room. I don't care how much of a cool customer you are. That's going to be a little bit destabilizing. Mm -hmm. And yet I have had, you know, not these, not quite the same kind of experiences, but I've been in a room with a celebrity or had an exchange with a celebrity Mm -hmm. and things do level out relatively quickly. I found you just go, Oh, well now I'm just talking to this person. Her name is Madonna. (laughs) And so that's the case for you, right? I mean, you might have a moment of, of, you know, what do you call it? Adrenaline. And then. Absolutely. So when I was at Madonna's house and I've written about this and I think I even mentioned it in the profile. So she was an hour and a half late and I was just heated. I was like, my time matters too. (laughs) And the best part was that when she showed up, didn't really acknowledge it. And she sure didn't apologize. And I thought, respect, respect. (laughs) Time is but a construct. For whatever reason, I found that to be so charming. I was just like, wow. All right, girl. Okay. And then she was like, we need wine. And she was talking about like wine sponsorships for this project she was working on, et cetera, et cetera. And she was like, and we're not drinking any fucking summer water. <laughs> and I was like, summer water, what the fuck? And it was Rosé that she was talking about. And then she had one of her many assistants decant a beautiful red. And it was one of the best glasses of wine I've ever had. And I've always wanted to write her back and say like, ma'am, what was this wine that we drank so I can buy it? But I don't even think she'd remember because like, who, why would she? And so we started talking and then she was like getting on the floor and she pulled her knees under her. And do I think she was maintaining a persona? Absolutely. But do I feel like we had a genuine conversation? I do. She was there. She was engaged. She was like, and I realized, oh my God, she's, and she wasn't wearing any makeup. She was just a person, a very, very famous, very talented, very dynamic person. And we started talking about the 2016 election and how she was so excited on election night and she and a lot of her friends were getting ready to like have this huge party and, you know, really celebrate Hillary as the first woman president. And then it didn't happen. And, you know, it was just like, there are things that unite us all, whether we are internationally beloved and renowned or just like a girl from Omaha, Nebraska. So you know, hopefully with a person you can find that. With Janelle Monet, we started playing. Um, she invited me back to her house after we were interviewing somewhere else at a restaurant. And we played Rummy Cube. And I love board games, love board games. And I'm very competitive. And so I was like, I'm going to win. 
I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Nobody gets special treatment around me. And Beyonce had sent her, this was for the first Old, um, old Navy, the first Ivy Park drop. Beyonce had sent like key people, these huge rolling trunks filled with personalized clothing. And so when I walked into her house, I had seen one of the trunks on Instagram and I saw the trunk in Janelle Monet's living room. And I was like, no, no. And at, toward the end of the evening, she tried on one of these coats that had this huge flowing train behind it. And she was running around the pool and the coat was like billowing and it was so magical. And I was like, oh my God, she really is whimsical in real life. Like she, it did not seem like she was putting on airs. She had her friends around. She, the Wonderland collective, like these people that she works and collaborates with, they were like in her house because they all rent this house when they're in LA. And, you know, it was just interesting to have this like human moment. And so I liked those moments when they happen in profiles. And I make myself not have an ulcer by just asking the questions that I want to ask and not giving into the pressure because sometimes an editor will be like, ask about her relationship. And they're like, you ask about her relationship. I have to go look this person in the eye for either an hour or four. No, you do it. Uh, and sometimes when you don't ask, they bring it up. And that has been the case, I think three times, which has always shocked the shit out of me. And I'm like, you know what? That's right. I'm like a lion in the grass, just waiting. <laughs> yeah, sometimes silence is your best. Uh, it really can be a great your best weapon. strategy. Mm-hmm. So, last thing I want to talk about with regard to celebrity has to do with the piece that you wrote on Pamela Anderson, mm-hmm. because I remember reading it at the time you published it, and then I think I listened to an interview she did on maybe Howard Stern or something. You know, she was on the book tour. And then I, that, like your piece and whatever radio interview that she did that I heard made me watch that documentary. Mm-hmm. I became unexpectedly like such a fan of hers. Mm-hmm. Like, as a, like she's a lovely human, like complicated, but like, I don't know, there was just something like there were, there were more dimensions to her mm-hmm. than I had previously like had it registered in my brain. I think maybe if I'm being honest... I sort of had her like, oh, she's just like a centerfold Baywatch. I, I don't know if I really gave it too much thought, but I don't know. I just found her to be lovely. And I would I don't know if I would have revisited it had I not read your piece. Honestly, I don't know that I would have given her a second thought if I hadn't read the memoir and watched the m- movie because of this assignment. I had no ill will or bad thoughts about her. I just thought, Oh, she's the Baywatch woman. And then like Tommy Lee's ex-wife and the woman who had to deal with um, the sex tape, which I always found horrific and felt a lot of empathy for her around that because he got to strut around like the King of the walk and she was slut shamed. And so to read some of the inside story about that in her own words and to watch this documentary again, on her terms, it's so great to see when a cultural figure like that, who she really was one of the most famous women in the world. Um, and to see like that there's a person behind that facade. I found a good person, a very good person who loves animals, who loves her children, who seems fairly unproblematic 
And when you look at the the, the landscape of celebrity, uh, it was really eye opening. And so I was glad to be able to write that piece and, you know, really evaluate some of my own preconceived notions about her and my own judgments and really sort of sit with that in myself. Like, why did I think that? And I'm not alone in thinking that, oh, she was just like the Baywatch girl. But it was great to be able to have that sort of conversation with myself and then figure out, well, what do I want to say about it? And what really impressed me throughout was that she was doing things on her own terms after a lifetime of, you know, being objectified and doing everything on other people's terms. And without fair compensation, like when you look at the ways that she was screwed over and the ways that her representation, frankly, failed her, I mean, she should be sitting on a pile of cash right now. And given the, given her cultural prominence and what she did for that show, she made that show, period, end of story. And that's who people were watching. That's what they were watching. I mean, the Hoff was also very popular, but people were tuning in for Pamela Anderson and some of the other women on that show. I think it was the women that really made that show and the men were set dressing. And so, you know, it was just eye-opening and interesting. And I'm glad to hear that my piece and the interview you saw with her, like, compelled you to watch the movie. I found it very interesting. And also that she has this massive archive of herself. And that's so interesting. Like, and so many celebrities do this. I had no idea, but like so many celebrities like film themselves 24 hours a day. It's wild. (laughs) I cannot imagine doing that, but I guess. It could not be me. Mm -mm. Listen, for the purposes of documentary film, these archives come in handy, I got to say. And I was yes. really impressed by, I was impressed by her candor. Yes. I think that's it. And, and her self-awareness, like there were just depths to her and a, a sweetness and, you know, this very troubled youth and a lot that she's had to overcome. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just, it totally surprised me in the best way. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've got to go because you are in demand, mm-hmm. but before we part company, mm-hmm. I have a gotcha moment okay. because at the top of this conversation, we talked about whether or not you disagree with yourself in revisiting these opinions. You said you do not. I don't. Except there is a piece Mm -hmm. in this collection Mm -hmm. called Why the Beach is a Bummer. The Beach Sucks. I, I, I get that. And I take that opinion at face value. But there is a line in that piece where you say, no, I do not want to pet your dog. I know. And oh, then there yeah. is a line in the... <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then if you, read, if you read this collection carefully, there is a line in the acknowledgments where you thank your dog, mm-hmm. Maximus Toretto Blueberry. Yes. That is so, a great gotcha, Brad. That is a great okay. gotcha. I have been an avowed dog <laughs> disliker my entire life because when I was five, a dog, a German shepherd named Targa, bit me on my ass and ouch. And so it traumatized me and I don't like dogs. I don't like their licking. I don't like shedding, etc., etc. And then I met my wife and she's a, an animal lover. Like she won't kill a bug. She takes the, she's the bug person. She'll take the insect outside and free it. And I'm like, stand on it, jump on it. What the fuck? And she had had two dogs for about 15 years before she met me and they died a few months before we met. And so when we met, she was like, I'm not ready for a dog. I don't want a dog. I just got two cats a week ago. And I was like, oh God, cats. 
okay, well, because I'm allergic, I was like, well, I guess there's Benadryl, um, but I'm not going to have anything to do with the cats. And that remains true. I mean, I feed them and like, I don't treat them poorly, but am I going to cuddle with them? Hell no, they shed. But anyway, about in uh, six months into COVID, I was like, huh. She kept talking about dogs more and more. And every time we would walk down the street, she would be like, puppy. And I was like, <laughs> just completely changed her persona. And I thought, oh my God, she's ready for a dog. Am I ready for a dog? So I did my Googling and I was like, I need a hypoallergenic, non-shedding, cute dog. <laughs> and I landed on multi-poos. And so we got a dog. I got it for her for her birthday. I did tell her in advance, you don't just throw a dog in someone's life. They're a lot of work. And we got him as a puppy. And those first few months were tough, but cute. And so, yes, I have a dog. I fucking love him. His name is Max. And we do everything together. And he's the best. And so you're right. I did change my mind about one thing. All right. See? My, this is my little small moment of personal triumph. Yes, you have uh, enjoy that triumph because that's a good one. <laughs> well, listen, it's great to see you. It's great to talk with you. Uh, congratulations on this new collection. Thank you. And uh, I wish you well with it and with whatever comes next. Oh, thank you, Brad. I always love talking to you. Okay, everybody, there we go. That was Roxanne Gay. Her new book is called Opinions, A Decade of Arguments, Criticism, and minding other people's business. It is available now from Harper Books. You can find Roxanne on the internet at roxannegay.com. Follow her on Twitter and on Instagram. Read her Substack. It's called Audacity. Read her opinions over uh, at the New York Times. You know, you know how to do this, right? She's everywhere. Once again, the new book is called Opinions. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, that would be great. You can do so over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you would like to receive my weekly email newsletter, head on over to Substack and subscribe. And if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Rate it, review it. It helps the program find new listeners. If you would like to get some apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com, the show's official website. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my book, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up next on the Other People podcast, there will be a Friday flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share a deep cut from an episode of your. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with author Claudia Day. She has a new novel out called Daughter, and it is superb, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I had a great time talking with Claudia Day. That is coming up on Sunday, so stay tuned.